This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Moray for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Information architects have been singing the praises of metadata, thesauri, and controlled vocabularies for years. But there's a new game in town, the semantic web. Senior information architect at Adaptive Path, Kiera Fox, answers the questions, what exactly is the semantic web, and why should I care? She provides greater context in how ontologies are similar and different from thesauri and taxonomies, provides examples of how this technology is being used in the marketplace, and looks at how these concepts can be incorporated into the information architecture work that you are doing today. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. I'm so excited that they put me here after lunch, after they fed you lots of rice and carbs for lunch, because this is going to be awesome, because the semantic web is just so cool, and I can't help but getting excited about it, and I know you guys won't help but get excited about it too. Now, when I proposed for this session, I had this kind of vague, nebulous idea about what the semantic web was. Something I've been hearing about for years and years and years, right? And I'm like, well, you're starting to hear more about it now. It seems like something, there's actually some there there. I'm gonna do some research. And so I'm going around and I'm doing searches and whatnot on the web. I kept coming across, let me see, are you gonna work? Ah, okay. You kept coming across this guy. And this is Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and he is the reason why we are all here today and we have jobs. Um, he's the man who wrote a lot of the protocol that make the World Wide Web. Not the internet, he made the web stuff. So HTTP and HTML, he did a lot of that foundational work. But he wasn't happy just doing that. He's been doing a lot of work since then, and the semantic web and the idea of linked data is one of those ideas and visions that he has that he's been working on for about a decade now. And we're, I think we're cool, Chris. <laughs> um, and so one of the visions that he put out there back in 2001, it was an article that he wrote for Scientific American, and it was an idea of what the semantic web might look and feel like. And I wanted to share that story with you guys here today. And just kind of give you a sense of back, you know, when the web was really starting to come into its own back in 2001, um, this is what the vision they were kind of thinking about. And this vision is about Pete. Pete's a guy who lives in this future in the semantically enabled world. And one day, Pete's in his apartment, and he's listening to his stereo, and he's rocking out to some tunes, having a great time, when the phone rings. And so Pete picks it up, and as he picks up the phone, his telephone sends a signal to the stereo and all the other devices in his apartment that have volume control and turn everything down. So now he can actually hear the person on the other end of the phone instead of the band that he was listening to. So on the other end of the phone, it's his sister, his sister Lucy. And she's at the doctor's office with her mother. It turns out that their mom is going to need to see a specialist and do some physical therapy. 
and Lucy says, you know, while I'm here at the doctor's office, I'm going to have my semantic web agent go ahead and set up the appointments that mom needs. Pete says, that's great. Go ahead and do it. I'll help carpool, and we'll make sure that mom gets where she needs to go. So Lucy instructs her semantic web agent on her little handheld web browser and says, I want you to go and start finding these appointments for mom. So Lucy's agent goes to the, to the doctor, and, she pull, and the agent pulls up the prescription information, knows what kind of treatment it is that mom needs, and starts looking for providers. And the agent looks up, finds a whole bunch of different providers that are in mom's health care plan, wants to make sure that we find people that are close to home, don't want to have to be driving for hours to get her to her appointments, and then starts looking at when do folks have availability, what are the opening appointment times, and then the agent also goes and starts looking at Lucy and Pete's schedule, because the agent has to figure out when do all of these things intersect, when can we actually get mom to the doctor's office. So the agent pulls all this stuff together and puts it into a plan, suggests a provider that's not too far away and the times that'll work for everybody. But Pete took a look at that and he said, no, 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 I don't like that plan. Because see, Pete knew that from mom's house to the university hospital was all the way across town and at that time he'd be going through rush hour traffic, it would just be a hassle. So he says, I don't want to do that plan, I don't want to go to university hospital. So Pete tells his agent to go through and do the search again, but this time with stricter preferences about location and time. Now Lucy's agent has complete trust in Pete's agent in the context of this task. And so that means that Lucy's agent is going to share through certificates and um, other shortcuts uh, through the data that it's already done, it's just going to hand that work over to Pete's agent so Pete's agent doesn't have to repeat that work. And Pete's agent is able to come up with a new plan almost instantaneously. It's much closer to the clinic, but there are a couple warnings that come up with the plan. One of them is that there is a conflict in the scheduling. Pete's going to have to reschedule an appointment that's already on his calendar. But he looks at what it is and he says, yeah, that's fine, I can move that, that, that meeting, that's not a problem. The other issue was that the insurance company didn't list this new provider technically as a physical therapist. They're listed as another provider. But the, looking, the agent looked at the service type and the insurance plan statutes and was able to infer that yes, indeed, this person really does physical therapy. And so because it was able to verify by these other means, went ahead and said, this is a good physical therapist. And so we were going to be able to go ahead and make these appointments. So now Pete is going to be able to take his mom to her therapy appointments, the therapist who is much closer to their homes. He can accept the plan. Lucy accepts the plan, still back at the doctor's office. And the appointments go ahead and get booked. So this is kind of an interesting story. It's something that hasn't necessarily come to pass eight years after Tim first put that vision out there. And there are certain aspects of it that make me a little queasy and stuff with some of the trust issues and you know personal information that's going back and forth. But there are some bits that are really, really interesting and bits that we are starting to see 
take short shape in the web of today. So I wanted to talk about those kind of interesting bits. But the first was the sharing of the data, right? We had calendar information between two people. We had information from the doctor's office that the agents were able to access. You know, it was kind of different repositories, different types of information, maps and locations and all that kind of stuff coming together. The second part was we had our smart agents, right? They, we had these little bits of software that are going out, doing the fetching and the working and the inferring. You know, they were able to deduce based on service plans and statutes and other information, kind of triangulate that, yes, indeed, this person is a physical therapist. And the third part that really stood out to me was the variety of platforms. People using handheld devices, we had folks at home on a laptop computer, we had stereos and televisions, you know, in an apartment, just kind of physical devices, um, all working together on this sharing data back and forth. And that part, those, those three kind of, for me, really come together of what the semantic web is turning out to be. When you do, you know, I actually typed what is the semantic web into Google, want to see what it would say. It's hard to get a definition because it's not something that you can really put your hands on yet, it's something that is very much still developing. And so a lot of people are putting ideas out there and making suggestions, but they haven't necessarily come to pass yet. But there are a couple themes that are very much um, taking shape. And one of them is that the semantic web is an extension of our current World Wide Web. It's not a separate internet, it's not different technology that's you know, on its own track. We're layering it on top of what we already have. It's an extension, we're expanding upon it. The other part is that this seamless web of all the data within your life. You think about it, we're leaving trails of data everywhere, no matter what we do, where we go. And Everything right now is kind of locked into different containers and silos, depending on which systems and networks we're using. The semantic web is looking to see how we can break down those barriers and interchange and exchange within all our systems. And what, what kind of sits at the core is the collection of standards. It's that common language, the common formats and syntaxes that we, if we all do things in the same manner, then we're going to be able to share more easily. Folks who, you know, if we've been talking about Dublin Core, you know, it seems like forever, right? It's a metadata framework and it's a list of um, metadata fields that you can use to describe your data. Why? So then you can share it. So we all know that DC Creator means the same thing, no matter where it is that we're using that. So what are some of these kind of standard technologies? What are these pieces? Um, what, is it, it, what is it that kind of makes this stuff go? And there's kind of three, there, it's a complex sandwich. There are a lot of layers that kind of make this up. But to me, there are three parts of it that kind of are easy to understand and seem to make the bulk of it. The first one is structuring our data and content. I don't know about you guys, but I almost get tired of talking about structuring data because it seems like that's all I ever say to my clients, right? 
you have a bunch of flat files, a bunch of text, you know, it's just articles, it's documents, you know, there's no structure to it. Metadata, metadata, metadata. Feels like that's all I said. Semantic web goes even farther with that. It's all about the structuring. It's once we have stuff structured, what are the relationships between these bits of data within the certain contexts that we're, that we're working within? So how are, we, how are the concepts related? And lastly, it's sharing those shared frames of reference and that data with each other. So first we're gonna talk a little bit about that structuring. This is a problem that folks who, you know, working with CMSs and whatnot, um, we've been banging our heads against this for a long time, right? If this is a web page, this side here is kind of how I as a human understand that page. I can see that there are titles and authors and tags and links, but for the browser, it just sees that there's text, maybe it's a H1, it's an H2, you know, it's got some markup around it, but it really doesn't understand what is within that container. It doesn't understand, you know, it doesn't, it can't make sense of the meaning behind it. The work we're all doing with content modeling, and when we talk about structuring our content management systems, so you know, we call out and we, we aren't dealing with the page level, we're dealing with individual components. That stuff's awesome, and the semantic web takes that to the next level builds upon that work. It's really looking at this, right? When we first started the web, we just had plain old HTML, and it was really a commingling of presentation as well as data. You couldn't separate the two. It's part of what we talked about in the keynote this morning, made that barrier, because it was hard to publish stuff because they were so conflated. We started getting into XHTML, when cascading style sheets, where we were pulling apart, so you have presentation over here, and I have my content and my structure and the more the data over here. What we're moving to is going even farther with our XML and how we're using it. And we wanna kind of get our data out of the proprietary formats and into a structure that everybody can share and understand. The first step to doing that is identifying what are the pieces? What do we have? It's kind of taking content analysis and just doing it on a grand scale. And what we need to do is we not need, not only need to identify something, we need to put a label on it. And the labels that we use are called URIs, right? They're the uniform resource identifiers. All of us, know and understand URLs, right? Uniform resource locators. It's what we type in the type of the browser bar. Well, they're actually just a special kind of URI. I always kind of figured they were basically the same thing and you could use them interchangeably. Turns out, no, these are much more specific. URLs are doing our identification as well as our location. URI is just identifying. It doesn't do the location part, that's separate. And we need to apply our URIs to everything, right? All the bits of data, we need to give it a unique, unique identifier. And the cool thing is, there is no standards body that tells us how to do this. I can take the content on my blog or my website or within my company and assign whatever I want as URIs. I can do words, I can do numbers, I could do whatever I wanted to. And what I use in my company 
might be completely different or might be kind of similar to what another company does. That's okay, because within our context, we're both using unique URIs. But what happens is we want to link this up, right? We want to be able to compare our data. We want it so when I start pulling on one strand, I can then connect and connect and connect and get more and more data and look at things in a new way, breaking down those silos. And so what we need to do is we need to put things in a framework. And that's where RDF comes in. It's the resource description framework. This is an XML framework. And so what that means is just like we have HTML pages today where we have you know, title tags and headers and body text, this is saying use XML in this way. Structure it this way and then everyone will know how your XML file is working. We can use it to identify things that are really specific, like this is a phone number, this is an email address. Or we could use it that are things that are not quite directly retrieved, things that are more conceptual, user preferences. You know, like Andy Hinton was talking about the concept of love. What does that feel like? We can put an identifier on concepts and, and express that in the form of RDF statements. RDF statements is where that term triples come in, because there are three parts that make up an RDF statement. There's the subject, which is the thing that the statement is about, the predicate, which is the property or characteristic, and the object, which is the value of the property. I don't know about you guys, I'm a librarian and English major. I start getting into this stuff and it just kind of goes over my head. So I was trying to figure out really hard, like, okay, what does that actually mean? Well, if you think about how we structure metadata in our HTML header fields, we do like meta name equals and then content equals whatever the value is, that's pretty much what these things are doing. It's saying for this object, like if we wanted to express the notion that the sky is the color blue, right? We'd say our subject is the sky. That's what we're talking about. Our predicate is the idea of it has a color. And then what that color is set to is the object. And that would be blue. So we'd have sky has a color blue. That's what our triple would look like. What do RDF statements look like? Well, they look like scary code like this with like all the hashtags and like when you do view source on your HTML pages, like that's what it looks like. And that's okay because this stuff is not meant for us. This is meant for machines. It's not to be human readable. It's so the machines can understand it and interpret it and then bring it back to us in a format that we can understand. What's really exciting is when you start thinking about all the different repositories of data that are out there. And if we took them and we started structuring everything in these RDF triples, we'd start to be able to compare apples and apples. And we'd be able to start linking between different types of repositories. And you know, what does it mean when we can start taking scientific literature and Wikipedia and you know, census data and who knows what else and mashing them together? We're, we're gonna be able to look at things in a way that we haven't been able to do that before. And in order to make this part possible, kind of linking these 
data repositories together, we still need one more piece. And that is the piece of knowing the context in which it is that we are working. Because we have our RDF statements, like we have subjects, but how do I know that when I say phone number and you say phone number, that they're actually the same thing, right? We need to be able to trust and depend on the fact that we're comparing apples to apples. And when we do that, that's where we need to start putting together some kind of explanation of our concepts. Because if the data strings don't match, they're not going to hold across all the different data repositories, and we're not going to be able to make sense of it. It's the kind of thing where, this is a quote I came across when I was doing this research. It says, there is great wisdom in the clouds, but there is no precision without accuracy. Right? We need to make sure that we get certain bits correct and they line up, or we're not going to be able to take advantage of that wisdom. And that's where things like ontologies come in. Now, I'm one of those people that tends to be a bit of a purist. If this was 2001, I would have been one of those obnoxious IAs that were telling you that taxonomy means scientific classification and that's it, and don't you dare use that term to talk about a website. I've mellowed over the years, right? <laughs> like, I talk about taxonomies now, okay? It's classification, hierarchy, all that kind of fun, good stuff. It used to be ontology. I'd be like, oh man, we already have the SORI taxonomy. Clients don't understand these terms as it is. We don't need a third one kind of muddying the waters. Like, we shouldn't even be talking about ontologies. It's just software vendors taking terms they don't understand and trying to make things sound cooler. Well, Again, I was needed to chill out because it turns out that ontologies are actually really freaking cool. And they are something that is different. Because what ontologies do is they're like a, a thesaurus on steroids, right? When we think of our most robust sothori, they have broader and narrower terms. We have our variant terms. And we're kind of like going in multiple directions up and down and sideways, but the SORI really let us go off at crazy angles. We have, you know, related terms in our thesaurus standards, but ontologies allow us to take related terms and just explode that out in a million different colors. It's really, really cool. So if you think about our typical thesauri entry, right, if we were going to have our term mobile phone, you know, we'd be referring to our anti-NISO standards, right, for monolingo thesauri um, creation, and we'd have our preferred term, we'd have used fors, it's also known as a cell phone or a cellular phone, we'd have a scope note in there, getting some kind of definition and a bit of dictionary action going in there, as well as our broader and narrower topics. Maybe, you know, clamshell, different types, maybe we want to include specific brands like an iPhone, we're, we kind of know this. Our control vocabularies that we create look like this a lot of the time. We wanted to go ahead and turn this into an ontology. The good news is we get to keep all that stuff that we've been working on and building over the years because we need that structure in our ontology. What our ontology lets us do is add additional relationships. Things like made by or use network of 
we as people know that if this is a mo I'm holding a mobile phone, um, it's made by someone who makes phones, right? Like we just kind of know that instinctually as people. A computer doesn't know that. It needs to be told. And, and so it's spelling out these different types of relationships that we're pulling together, kind of explaining how the world is constructed within this domain. Ontologies aren't done to kind of try to do the whole world of human knowledge, right? There's not a Library of Congress ontology that's trying to do everything. They tend to be very focused because they can get really granular then, and that's a good thing. So to convert our thesauri, if we wanted to start creating ontologies, um, we take the work that we've originally done, and we need to put it into a special format. Right? Having things run on the semantic web is all about using the same standards. When it comes to ontologies, those standards are things like OWL, the web ontology language. That's what lets us express all those different relationships for any given subject and do those linkings between types of data. And this is all written in XML, and you guessed it, it's all also in RDF. But OWL adds layers to your basic RDF, and it allows us to get deeper with the properties and classes. And again, this is something that's not meant for humans to read. You know, no one expects us to sit with an XML file and kind of go through it line by line. There are probably developers out there in the world who do that. I'm not one of them. Um, and that's okay, right? We need those people um, to, to worry about that stuff, but it's really the machines and the applications that are the ones are gonna be processing, processing this and understanding how it all kind of fits together. So we have our data and we have it identified and structured. It's all expressed in RDF statements now, right? It's in good XML. We have ontologies that we've created for our domain. So if I am an enterprise software company, you know, if I'm working for Oracle, I might have the Oracle ontology that talks about you know, the world of um, enterprise software. Or if I'm at a university and I'm doing biomedical research, you know, it might be the, just this biomedical field. That's my domain. Once I've established those, I can have fun kind of by myself, but just like kids at a playground, it's more fun if you have a friend to play with. And that's where we need to start sharing. And this is where we get back to Tim Berners-Lee. He was at TED this February, and he gave a talk about the semantic web and linked data. And I just wanted to show you a clip from his presentation where he talks about sharing um, our information and our data most exciting for came down here I looked up on the open street map open street maps map but it's also a wiki zoom in and that square thing is the theater which we're in right now the terrace theater I didn't have a name on it so I could go into edit mode I could select the theater I could add on down the bottom the name and then I could save it back and now if you go back to the openstreetmap.org and you find this place you will find that the terrace theater has got a name I did that me <laughs> I did that it's the map I just did that I put that up on there hey you know what if I, it's all the, the street map is all about everybody doing their bit, and 
this, it creates an incredible resource because everybody else does theirs. And that is what linked data is all about. It's about people doing their bit to produce a little bit and it all connecting. That's how linked data works. But you do your bit, everybody else does theirs. You may not have lots of data which you have to, yourself to put on there. And he goes on to say, but that's okay, because there are some folks who are going to have a lot of data and some folks who have a little bit. The important thing is that we all, it's a community effort. We're all doing our bits to add to this body of knowledge. This was just a really quick example from TripIt, that travel site, and you can just see where coming out here, it gives you that view of all your travel information, hotels, weather, flights, all of that together. We're pulling things from separate repositories separate companies and bringing it together in a new view. Friend of a friend or the FOF projects. That's another piece of kind of semantic web movement that you can get started with right away. You can go through and you can add this information to your blogs and to your websites. If you're on LiveJournal or TypePad, kind of already inherent in the system. And it's, it's this very grassroots movement to have folks who are doing this kind of decentralized social ontology, kind of following what is the data, the data is people, and where they work, and what, in, what interests they have, and who they know. And you can go around and move around that web. It's really kind of cool. We're seeing semantics being used in search more and more. I think this is an awesome thing. Right now, they're really niche and really fine domains that it happens in. But this is important because Google, I know this is heresy to say, it's not great for everything. <laughs> you know, if you're doing a known item search, right, you have a specific piece of information that you want to know, man, that thing is whiz-bang wonderful. And why is it? Because it's essentially doing really, really fancy keyword matching. Right? You put in your query, and then it's looking to see where that term appears in its index, and then does it all its fancy algorithms to figure out, of all the possible hits, which are the best ones. Right? It's great at that. But there are some types of searches where that's not the right answer. That's not the right way to go about it. You know, if you're doing a literature review for your dissertation, or law reviews, or medical work, you're trying to do research, you know, if you have really sticky disambiguation and trying to get your terms and what meanings do you, how, how exactly are you using that phrase or term, Google's not so good at that, right? It's starting to get a little bit better, but it's still, it's still rather confused in a lot of ways. And semantics will allow us to make those more fuzzy conceptual searches possible. They allow us to ask different types of questions. If you go back and you watch that talk at TED by Tim Berners-Lee, he'll talk about the um, researchers who are looking for drugs on how to treat Alzheimer's disease. And there are, there are folks out there, bi you know, biologists and chemists and researchers who sit back and they wonder about things like, what proteins are involved in signal transduction and are related to paramyeloid neurons? You know, there are people who wonder this. I don't, but at least somebody is thinking about that, right? If they were to go into Google and do a search with some of these keywords, they're going to find a lot of hits, right? They're going to get thousands of results, 
but it's not necessary. There, there, there are keyword matches. No one is talking about this concept of these two things pulled together because they just had this idea. No one has created a web page that has these things together yet because we, no one else has invented it. If you look at some of the linked healthcare data where folks in research universities have taken their genome, so their um, databases about genes and their databases about proteins, they put them into RDF and so they can compare them, they're sharing an ontology. They can do a search there with these keywords, whiz bang, they get 32 targeted results. That gives them 32 ideas of where to go, of how to focus their research, and what they should start looking at next as far as finding this drug and answering that problem. That's huge. That's amazing. Um, that's the power of the semantic web. So how do we as IAs help this happen? How do, how do we help this come into fruition? Like I said, a lot of folks are really obsessed with the technology and the nuts and bolts and the XML. I don't, just like we don't have to know how to do JavaScript or how to write AJAX interactions, we, we still know what AJAX is but we can design for it, right? We now know that it allows us these types of interactions that we didn't have before. Well, same thing with the semantic web. We kind of know that these technologies are there. What kind of new interactions and systems do we want to create? We have, you know, we can think beyond the vocabularies and thesauri that we're used to thinking about. Start thinking in terms of ontologies, what other relationships are important to our users and in our domains. You know, what do the interfaces look like when we start bringing all this information together? Right now, those health databases that the scientists are using, that's a really expert system. Right? They're PhDs and really, really smart, experienced folks who are using these engines. What does the semantic system look like that my mother or your grandmother might be using? Right? They're not able to use this protein search thing, but they can certainly take advantage of the semantic web. And so what can we do as user experience professionals who know the behaviors and motivations of our clients and of our patrons and of our customers, what can we say, hey, you know, we now have this tool, this is an awesome application for it. You know, this is where we should go. And I think that's where the power of the IA community, because right now, those folks are in the developers, they're just making stuff because they can, and we, want, we can give them a focus. We can help shape that tool into something that'll really be powerful and help change people, people's lives. Got a couple more minutes. Um, these are just some links. Um, where to go to learn more? I barely even touched the top of the iceberg with this, but I hope you kind of, will kind of feel now that it's not quite as scary and it's something that you can go through and learn more about. The WC3, or W3C rather, is where most of the action is at. That's kind of the central working groups. They have all kinds of guides and presentations and models and images and stuff to help ex explain these concepts. Some of it's really technical and geeky. Some of it an English major and librarian were able to understand. So just go look around, you'll find something. 
The Semantic Technologies Conference happens in San Jose, California every fall. It's an amazing, fun conference. Yes, they do have presentations where they have code up on the screen and everyone gets excited about the code that's up on the screen. But there are also vendors there and there's a lot of information and just they're not necessarily aware that the user experience community exists, just like we're not sure what all they're doing, it's, it's kind of fun to go over there almost as an ambassador, right, and see what they're working on and so we can bring it over. Because I'm a librarian, I look towards books. These were three that I got off Amazon that I found really, really helpful, especially the Semantic Web Primer. The finding the concept, that one was great because it put everything in terms of, as a librarian, this is what it means in the semantic web. So it puts it in a frame of reference that I found really easy to understand. And with that, I thank you for taking this look. The, the presentation is up on my website now. I also uploaded it to SlideShare right before lunch. Um, we'll see if it's finished processing and it's up there yet. But you can go through, download those slides, send me an email. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. And I think we got about five minutes left. And welcome to, they, they, I, they make me put this one up. Um, but yeah, I'm welcome, I'd happy to take any questions and answer them if I can. So the question is, how do we prevent people from gaming the system and how can we make sure that they're being honest with the data that they're sharing? We know already, if we think back to the early days of the web and all the spam in metadata fields that people abuse, right? If we give them this power, we know they're gonna abuse them. And that's one of the questions that I think they're still really figuring out. Trust systems is something that's very important. Um, it's one of those things where it, it builds, I think it's very layered, and it's one of those where it starts on a very small level. I have my stuff and I know that's good. And I know you personally or I know, you know, I'm somehow able to authenticate you. And therefore we start with the connection. And then you happen to know someone. And then because I trust you so much, I'll now trust your friend. And it's going to network out. And it's going to take a while. Is it governance? Is it... I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what form that's going to happen, but if we think back to that big web stack sandwich, trust was a big one that was up there, and they are working on it. I, hope, I trust they are. Chris, I think you had a question? So Chris's question is that, you know, we have tagging, which is very kind of ad hoc, user-generated, and this seems a lot more structured and formal, and how do we get people to put in the extra effort to kind of do that to that deeper level? Um, I think there's kind of a couple parts to that. One is I think people are, we need people to just keep doing that tagging. That's that their little bits and we need to make sure that when we type in our tags for our Flickr photos that we're taking here today, you know, Flickr on the back end might be storing that all in XML and putting in RDF statements and whatnot. And so what can we do behind the scenes so it's transparent to the user so they don't have to change their behavior, but we can still be adding those layers that we need. I think that's one part of it. Um, 
the other part of it, I think that's kind of the age-old question. How do we get people to tag, you know, and put in those levels, that level of detail? Um, it's not an easy answer, um, but I don't think that it's any different in a lot of ways than the issues we're having right now when we have someone who's posting an article in a CMS system or they're posting information, you know, on a medical website. You know, we're saying put in a description and put in tags and put in keywords and whatever. Like, those behaviors are going to be the same. So I think when we crack that nut once, we'll crack it kind of fully. I'm not sure how to do that yet, but we're working on it, right? I think there was a question. The, the question is how do we get the business community to kind of break out of that walled garden, right? Everyone's coming up with their own APIs and their own ways of doing things, and how can we get them to adopt standards and kind of play together? And that's a really good question. Um, it's one of those things where I think it's going to be building over time. You know, we, didn't, we weren't able to do mashups 10 years ago but we're able to do them now. And I think as we start having more and more examples where this is happening, where it's going to be one of those things, well, yeah, we could do related, you know, whatever in this way, but it means X, Y, and Z on the back end. And it's going to take a while to build those cases. I think I'm exactly out of time now. I'm happy if there are any more follow-up questions, come up, see me, email me, whatever. I'd be happy to talk with you. Thank you. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.